Welcome back. Another app here. And we are continuing. There's like a part two on retention. Uh, and so I want to just dive straight back in because you were talking yeah. where we left off about another view, sort of a one-two punch, taking this idea around developing relationships at Brooklyn Music Factory. We talked about that with retention in the last episode. But then you were saying you had another, like something you really wanted, an alternate view or just kind of an additional uh, view on retention. So can we just dive straight in and just give you the floor yeah. here? Turns out we had so much to say that I just think, you know, we could record a three-hour podcast like Tim Ferriss does, but I'd rather just keep it nice and contained. And that was such a great stopping point. So do you want me to just jump in? I say jump straight in. And but well, hold on, dude. If you're if you're listening to this episode right now, but you haven't listened yes. to the previous episode, you should absolutely pause, go rock 45 minutes on that, and then come back because I think this is all going to link in. So anyways, yeah. just wanted to say that, Daniel Fire, where are we at? That's really good advice. Okay. Are you a music school owner looking to scale your program from just a handful of teachers to a highly profitable, well-organized, and mission-driven company? Well, I'm Nate Shaw, co-founder of the Brooklyn Music Factory. And I'm Daniel Patterson, founder of Grow Your Music Studio. And we're here to help you discover a proven pathway to sustainable growth in your music school. So get ready to take your passion for music education and scale it to a seven-figure music school. I started the last episode by saying that as I became, I, I kind of siloed myself off from the music industry. Mm. Um, when I started teaching in 2004, and then me and a partner built a music summer camp that would see hundreds of kids per summer. <clears throat> I was doing this as a man in my early 20s. This was before all the resources existed on the internet for music school owners, for music studio owners. And I really didn't have a view of what was going on in, in the wider world. And so after cloistering myself for 10 years, I kind of popped my head up and found out this is a conversation. But it wasn't one that I'd been having in my head because it wasn't something that I was dealing with. It wasn't, it was never a pressing issue for me. It was never a pressing issue for our summer camp, obviously, because of the short-term nature of that. But that's going to play into how my views developed. And then it really wasn't a pressing issue that ever came up um, for my friend who I had eyes on in his school. And we were often talking about his school, the marketing of the school, the strategies of the school, how our curriculum played into how his school developed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these views kind of developed in secret. And what I realized as, as I looked across the landscape and look at how often this question came up and how, you know, how much teachers complained about this or music school owners complained about this, I realized that I was going to have to reverse engineer how I got to where I am on this topic because I was intuitively doing things that were, that were, um, I was intuitively doing things that was contributing to incredible retention numbers, low cancellation rates to kind of put it in the terms that you put it in the last episode, which again, I think people should go listen to. Um, but I didn't know how to communicate it. Mm. And so there was kind of this period where I had to reverse engineer it, you know, as I was working with other school owners and student owners, I mean, <laughs> look, listen, the best way to kind of draw out your views is to have those questions asked because then I had to start making the connection to, oh, okay, so this is what I did. And I started teaching it to people, but it was very much against this idea of the tactical approach, which again, we kind of um, poo-pooed on in the last episode. But again, I want to pay a little bit of attention to that right there, because I think the way that most people ask questions about this topic and the way that it is taught is this very tactical approach where it's like, People want the quick fix. They want, what's the thing I can do to, in, to increase my retention? Um, everybody wants to have the great retention numbers. Nobody wants to do the deeper, harder work. And so what I often see is this approach of the tactical approach, and then maybe some people put it into systems. But I think that isn't, that isn't the move. I think you have to start with the foundation first. Mm -hmm. And your tactics and your systems develop from there. In other words, I think this one-two punch that we're going to be talking about in these two episodes, um, 
I think it's something that people need to consider and think about, but then they have to do the harder, deeper work of sitting down and thinking, well, what does this look like for me? Because I did relationships. I had to do relationships very differently than you did, Nate. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a minute. Someone else, depending on what part of the country you're in or what country you're in, the size of your school or studio, Mm -hmm. the curriculum you use, the kinds of uh, teachers that you hire, it's all going to play into this. So there is a sense that we can take big principles and sure there are some tactical approaches, but unless it's undergirded by a foundation where you're not just uh, playing by rote, as it were, those tactics aren't going to do nearly as much for you as if there is a foundation underneath it that that invests those tactics and those systems with a deeper um, with a deeper significance. Okay, so let's in, let's give our listeners an overview of where you arrived. I want you to define okay. foundation, um, and if you can. Like what for you, as you were thinking about this, and it sounds like you were thinking about it in hindsight with your studio. Yeah. And then you were thinking about it as you were presented with the same challenge from a number of clients that you were working with. Um, what is like, what is just give me, you yeah. know, give me like step one on developing foundation. Like, what, okay. What it will give me like a concrete piece of advice right out of the gate. Sure. And then I'd actually like an overview of like the steps that we might be, that you might be covering. Um, Cause I want to get clarity on how, um, how this differs from the last episode in yeah. a what nuanced way. So maybe okay. you can just give us, give us your step one on, on an action you would suggest with a studio owner. It's so funny that you're asking this because as I was sketching out like a little outline of how I might present this, this is literally where I was going next. It's how I came to my foundational beliefs. And as I mentioned at the outset, I reverse engineered this, but I wasn't reverse engineering it in the moment. There was really a pressing question that came up for me, which was, why are students quitting after, you know, such a, a period of time? And again, because of when this developed, my thinking on this developed, this was pre all the Facebook groups. This was, you know, there might've been a few music teacher forums out there, but this was before all the major blogs that are out there were out there. So I kind of had to develop this in, in a silo. And the, and the, I don't know if it's a piece of advice necessarily, but it, it but it was my North star question. Why do kids quit? And the answer I came up with is because it feels hard. Because mm-hmm. it feels hard to them. Now, this might seem overly simplistic, but I, I want to I invest this with a little bit of emotion. I can clearly remember in my first few years of teaching music, this happened with you know, more than one kid. It didn't happen with every kid. But we would turn the page in a book after they had passed a song and they would groan. Uh, and I would ask him, why did you do that? Uh, well, aren't you excited about learning a new song? You know, I, I wasn't trying to be judgy with them. That wasn't the energy which I was projecting there. It was literally like surprise to me. Aren't you excited about learning a new song? And the paraphrase, the amalgamation of the answer that I got from all those kids, different ages, you know, uh, just learning new songs is so hard. I just kept hearing that over and over again. And I could not get this thought out of my head. And it turns out that it was far more nuanced than this, but it was a, it was a good starting point. I just thought, you know what? Kids, what I hear from parents, oh, it's not you. It's them. Yes. I'm just not enjoying it anymore. You know, and there's probably a little bit of like trying to, they're trying to be nice to me or they like me and they want to, you know, spare my feelings or anything. Oh, they like you, Daniel. It's just, they're just, not, they're just not enjoying it anymore. But every parent didn't know that that's what I heard from every parent. So I had a very different view of that. I got annoyed with that after a while. Totally. But I would see the correlation between a child, the groan, how long it was taking them to learn a song and pass a song, 
how much they would struggle to get a concept. As the concepts got harder, as we got deeper into a method book, uh, the, 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 the practice time went up how good they sounded went down, you know? So as we're getting into music that's a little more complex and actually has some texture and richness to it, it's actually sounding worse because of the complexity that is supposed to make it sound good. And so <laughs> I'll never forget this. I went to a workshop with Randall Faber. He was giving the workshop. Nice. This was 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I was like the only one of the few guys that was there. Mm. And so there was a break and, um, uh, you know, the gentleman's room was on the other end of the building. And, and so I was going over there during the break, you know, I'm trying to be delicate here and he was as well. And so I had him all to myself because he'd been kind of surrounded by a crowd of people, but he right. kind of excused himself. So I got to chat with him all the, um, all the way back, you know, I, you know, um, and uh, we kind of stopped in the hallway and I said something to him and, and uh, he looked, he kind of looked off into the distance like, oh, I've never heard it said that way before. And it was this thought, the only connection point between all these students that are struggling with music is me. Fascinating. I'm the problem. Hmm. And so it was these two thoughts that it feels hard to these kids and this ownership of I'm the only link between all these kids some of them are doing great in school, make honor roll. They're going to a private school. And even in a private school where the academic standards are higher, they're in honor roll. And, you know, kids that, you know, the parents say they're struggling in school. Like the parents, you know, confess these things to me. Doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the relative intelligence, how well they're doing in school, what activities, they're all just complaining that it's hard. And so I went on a multi-year journey to, to answer the question for myself, why is this hard? And I would carry a notebook around and I would write down all of my thoughts, all my frustrations. Oh, why are these kids doing this? You know, you know what people do now? They go to the Facebook forums and they complain in public to other people and nothing gets done. <laughs> I didn't have that outlet. I'm, I'm glad that maybe I didn't because maybe I would have done that too. I don't know. But I, I literally wrote the, all these quote unquote dark thoughts down and just started contending and wrestling with these issues that I found. And what I did, and I'm going to maybe take a break here because I'm sure you probably have some follow-up questions or I think there's probably something you want to inject here, but I became obsessed with figuring out how to make each concept as easy as possible. And I started A-B testing, except even that it was more like A-B-C-D-E-F-G testing different ways of teaching the same concept until I found something that worked for like 99% of kids where they could get it almost instantly. They could get the concept. And so I didn't settle into this because I was four years into my career and I was already becoming this jaded old man. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I hate this job, you know? Um, and so I just thought if I can, if I can make this easy for the kids, they'll stay. That was my working proposition. Okay. I'm going to call time out here because I have a lot more to say about this and yeah. where this led to and, and what that two is in the one, two punch. Mm. Um, but what are you hearing so far? Where do you want to develop this conversation up to this point? Well, I want to, I mean, you opened with this idea, Daniel, um, if I can just go back up to, you know, sort of 10,000 feet on it, which is you opened with the idea of developing a foundation in order to be able to have any success with tactics around retention. Yes. Like in the last episode, we talked about a number of tactics that Brooklyn Music Factory uses, like the Musician's Journey Report, et cetera. Yes, but, but just giving you credit where credit is due, there's a foundation underneath those tactics, yeah. So I want to actually, can I reframe foundation from what I just heard you describe, the story you described? Sure. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work backwards here. You said I was obsessed with making each concept as easy as possible. So this is so essential for, in my mind, for our listeners to zero in on your last comment. Because what you're obsessed with is where you begin to define the why, right? This is, I know you 100%. quite well right now. I mean, we've been working together now for years. And this is something that you, you're hyper curious on. 
you are oftentimes giving me feedback on how we can like improve the podcast, how we can improve work we're doing with coaching, you know, school owners and all these things, because you're constantly um, looking to refine the system within which you're operating. So this was one of your motivators, I think, honestly, as being a teacher and a school owner, right? And and you said um, you said I wanted to, to make each concept. Here's an important thing to highlight. I think is that you are subscribing. I can't remember what method you were using. Um, maybe you used Faber. Yeah, I used Faber. Faber. Of course, because you were hanging out with Randall. So you're like, so you're using the Faber method. So for you, the obsession wasn't, hey, I need to design a method book. You were like, how do I make each page of this Faber method book, which you trusted? And in your heart, you said this was this mm-hmm. was exactly what was this is right for my program, for my school. You said, I want each page to be viewed differently by every one of my students. Instead of when they turn the page and think hard, you wanted to turn the page and them to be energized. Right? And so this is like, when we talk about foundation and we talk about how to um, improve retention, you're describing your why. And, there, and that is a radically different conversation with that parent who said, it's not you, it's us. He's just not enjoying it anymore. When you have conversations with all of your parents, and I'm sure your retention improved radically as you went on this journey, right? This obsession of yours around why do students say it's hard? When you are communicating with parents, you are communicating a totally different message. You're communicating a message around every time I turn the page, I want your child to be excited. Yeah. Let me tell you about the the student I used to teach. The student I used to teach sighed with defeat and said this was hard when I turned a page. But now every one of my students, when I turn the page, they're energized by the opportunity. So. I think that's really important, um, and and uh, and I wanted to just frame that. If people are saying like, "Well, wait a minute," we talk in abstract concepts around foundation, but everybody who's listening, Daniel, has a similar story to yours. Um, I had, I, and I wanted to give a quote from one of my piano teachers. Mm. My piano teacher. Um, so I studied with a great jazz pianist named Kenny Werner for years, and I used to fly mm. to New York to take lessons with Kenny because I was living in Minneapolis at the time. And he said to me once when I was, you know, he gave me some sort of rhythm exercise, some, you know, we were working deep on improv, improvisation around, you know, uh, and rhythm. And, and he's like, Nate, this isn't a hard rhythm. This is a less familiar rhythm. And so I've taken, mm-hmm. he just, that was one of his techniques. He's like, it's, there's only familiar and less familiar. And so you're trying to move the less familiar into the familiar category. And so um, I just love that for me. And it, obviously it stuck with me because that was 25 years ago, 30 years wow. ago. And I still use that language every day with my students. Hmm. Uh, anywho, I want to go back to where we left off with you because you're on this journey where you're carrying around a journal, you're writing in it like weekly um, and, and you are trying to answer the question, why does a student say what they say? Why yeah. do they say it's, it's, it's hard? I love, um, by the way, dude, I love that you even ask the student in the moment, why do you say that? Because many of us as teachers just sort of plow ahead with our lesson plan. You know, you took yeah. a moment. And if you want to know how to develop relationships, Start by asking questions of your students. <laughs> yes. Well, so to get to get back to it, I think this is where I kind of I just I realize I've kind of been teasing this for like an episode and a half now of what is the one-two punch. Okay. Fire. So if the one is relationship. The two, I think there's different ways to say this, and maybe if we can come up with another R, that would be helpful <laughs> or, or funny. Okay. But it's it's the it's the product. Kids don't quit if it's easy. 
And what we're talking about is not marketing, not sales, not communication, not attendance bracelets, not tactics. What we're saying at root is if the, if, if the product is good, why would someone quit it? Why have I been using an iPhone since 2008? Why do I continue to buy you know, from certain companies over and over and over again? And so for me, the one-two punch is, yes, there's relationship, but the two is effectiveness, Mm -hmm. Um, the effectiveness of the product. And I got a lot of opinions on that. And this is kind of why I set it up the way that I did and told the story that I did, because at the heart of it, a fantastic product, and I know it's weird to talk about in this way, and and in, in past, you know, having worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studio owners now. Some people do bristle at this to to refer to it this. Oh, well, this is music. This is art. This is, yes. And I love that. And I've been doing that since I was three years old. And um, I enjoy the experience of going and seeing live music. And I love playing the instrument. And I love community, you know, I love sharing the Brandenburg concertos with a 12-year-old who's never heard that before. I love all that stuff, but there's the business side of it too. And my love for all that stuff doesn't mean a hill of beans if the kid doesn't want to stay in it. And so for me, that question of how do we make this not hard, it, it was never approached as like, oh, I've got to increase retention. I mean, that's kind of what I was doing, yes, but there was just a frustration deep down of like, how do I make it so that they want to continue in this? How do I get them over the hump? And so I have a number of things that I think would be valuable to communicate here and and maybe kind of take people through the history of my thinking and how all of this developed and how I got to a place where the product was good. And in, do, in so doing, I think people will have their own takeaways that they can apply to what they're doing. Can, um, I, ask you, can I ask you a yeah. question? Because I've heard you speak to this before, and we talk about the promise, right? Yes. We talk about in bucket number one, your marketing promises something that mm-hmm. your studio will deliver on. Yeah. Sounds to me like you're linking that to bucket number two, which is saying, like, and now these are my. These are my techniques to deliver on that promise, i.e. there is a product which will deliver an outcome and I have de- I developed ways to move my students all the way to that outcome. Mm-hmm. What was your promise, dude, at your studio? Like, how, what did you actually promise? Before or after? Mm, I'd love to hear both. Like, what did, you, what did you promise in the initial and then mm-hmm. what did you promise once you developed, once you became wiser? <laughs> <laughs> like... Well, I think at the beginning, I did what everybody does, which is just to say what I know. So here's my degree. Here's my credentials. Here's what we're going to do. And when I take people through marketing training, really, uh, you know, the trainings that Grow Your Music Studio offers around marketing and and things of that nature, and even our product training, like, um, it's really more of a communication training and, and showing people how to rethink the way they do a lot of the things that they do because what we do intuitively is actually dead wrong because so, we think from our perspective we don't think we don't think from their perspective and so they're being the child and the parent yeah so i want you to go back to this notion of the one two punch the product what mm-hmm. did you promise your parents once you had done that hard work of being like oh this is what every student needs to move from page to page. What was your, did you have a one or two sentence promise that you knew you could deliver on? Yeah. And so this is kind of jumping to the, the end. Yeah. And so I think let's jump to the end and then maybe let's build how we got there. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to start with the end in mind. Yeah. So what was the promise? Um, that it was just, it, it was going to feel easy for the child. Mm. I mean, that's it. This will feel easy for them. And then I just had a bunch of supporting stories to prove that that was the case. Got you know, it. Naval Ravikant has this really great quote. Um, you're doing sales because you failed at marketing and you're doing marketing because you failed at product. And so when I talked talk a minute ago about the product being everything, it's like, 
um, my website was small. I had a very bold claim on it. Um, and I didn't even really have to say anything to parents. I didn't have to tell them anything. I just brought them in and showed them how fast I could get the child to play on their own. Yeah. And so my opening lesson um, you was almost scripted. Like I didn't actually have a script, but I said and did, like I put the jokes at the same place. Um, I said the same thing to every child. And this is getting back to me doing that A-B testing. Yeah. If I knew it worked, why would I, why would there be a variation on it? Why would I, why would I try to, to, to play that? Like if I want to create a, if I want to be able to reliably create a product, a result, then we have to take chance out of the equation. And, you know, my mood shouldn't play into it. Um, me deciding I want to, you know, try things a bit a little bit different today shouldn't play into it. So once I got the thing that worked, I just did it over and over and over again. And I recorded a lot of my trial lessons. And as I went back and kind of reviewed them um, for quality, I would save them. And then once I went and looked at a trial lesson I'd done years before, and what was shocking was just how similar it was to the one I had just done. Um, you know, there were a few things where I'd gotten better at a certain thing, but, or, uh, uh, you know, um, communicating a certain concept, but over time, what happened was what I said just became less and less and less because I stopped having to fish for try to try to find the thing that I knew would work for the child. So the story of me making it easier for the kids to kind of draw it full circle here was learning how to say as little as possible in the lesson. Mm, tell um, me more about that. Oh my goodness. Um, teachers talk way too much, almost to the point of self-aggrandizement. Um, teachers should say very, very little because it removes agency from the child, in my opinion. And I could get to the point and I've recorded my first couple lessons. And, you know, this is one of our trainings um, where I basically get a kid to sight read on their own in two lessons or less, depending on the age of the child, it might be near to the beginning of the second lesson. If they're a little bit younger, it might be more to the end of the second lesson, but where I could reliably turn the page in the beginning of the method book, point at it and say, show me where your hands go. And they show me and I say, show me the first, um, the first key you push down and they would, and I'd say, okay, now get that first line. And I walk away from them and they get it. Okay. Um, so put, put your card up when you've got the first line learned and I'll come back and listen to, to make sure that it's correct. I'm looking at this six-year-old. I'm leaving them alone. And they're getting the song on their own 100% of the time. Okay, go ahead. Well, it makes perfect sense to me, Daniel, because you're because this is one of the things I've heard you say before, is that sight reading was a really important measure of success in your studio, mm -hmm. which I love. It's probably in a lot of studios here. It's not a measure. It's not a benchmark at BMF, right? But it's I can give you the exact same example, which is your child will um, write a song in the first lesson. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the same difference. That's cool. You yeah. know, same idea. Like, you know, it's so it's brilliant. Now you're like a couple lessons in and the kid already feels totally empowered. You're learning how to say as little as possible is my next question for you. Because okay. what strikes me around that, and, and I know the topic here up here is retention, but what right. you're really doing is you're giving us a masterclass on lesson planning. Because if you, it sounds to me like if, if we know how to plan our lesson and we at BMF, we think in 15 week arcs, each season is, or we, we call them season, songwriting seasons, but most people call them semesters. So a 15 week <laughs> season, <laughs> you know, so a 15 week season, we're always hammering this idea of knowing the lesson plan, a 15 week lesson plan, right? Mm -hmm. So, but you're saying, learn how to say as little as possible. What strikes me is that as a teacher, you really have to know your curriculum and you have to trust it. Not only do you have to trust the page you're on, but you have to trust and you have to know and trust the next page you're going to turn to, right? In order to, right? Because oftentimes we talk when we're sort of nervous, you know, it's like idle chatter. Like we start talking a lot because we don't actually trust what's going to happen next. So can you or talk? We don't, or we don't know. Or we don't know. 
we don't know how to get a result in the child. So we talk our way into it thinking that we're going to implant something in their brain that allows their hands to do a physical skill, but that's just not how it works. And we could probably do a whole nother topic on that. But to be honest, I go in this in depth in our group lesson training. Like I, but I'll, I'll leave that there because that's really where I want to get next because I see what you're getting at here. I want you to talk now. Can I, can I forward your tape now? I'm going to be that six-year-old. Six-year-old okay. came in, two lessons in, I'm psyched because all of a sudden my hand is translating a written page into sound on a keyboard. Mm -hmm. I'm like, my mind is kind of blown because not only do I look at the keyboard as this amazing toy, but now you're like linking it to a page to new notation, you know, now fast forward a year. So now I'm seven. Mm -hmm. And for the first time I say, this is hard. Tell me about your retention strategy there. What, tell me, what does the lesson plan look like then? What did you learn from year one of your studio to when, you know, year five or whatever, where you were like, I spent all this time working on how to eradicate that language. This is hard. Um, what keeps me from saying that as a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old? Okay. I, I have, a, I absolutely have an answer for that, but... I feel like I have to give some context first before I can answer it. Are you okay with that? Yeah, totally. Give us go up to 10,000 and then take me back down to the ground of the studio. Okay. Because I have to loop back to our last episode where you talked about relationships because there was a, there was something at work for me that was not at work for you that made me think about keeping students in a different way than you did mm -hmm. because of what my intentions were, what my long-term goal was. Because Nate, you had a goal of building a big school and you succeeded at it. Mm -hmm. I never had the goal of building a big school. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why I developed the way that I did, and, and it, it differs from you and why I think this is a good one-two punch, is because all of this was in the context of group. Look at the arc of my career. I start teaching private lessons in 2004 right after I graduate college. My best friend says, Daniel, I want to start a summer camp. And we would teach kids in groups of 24 kids at a time, all brand new at piano. Yeah. And so how do you get results with that many kids? Well, of course, I'm going to have to learn how to talk less. <laughs> if, if it's taking me 20, 30 minutes. Oh, no, no. If it's taking me an hour over two private lessons to get a kid really solid on the staff, how in the heck am I going to reproduce that with 24 kids all at once? Yeah. So there was a sense that how, how could I rely on the relational element of it when it when when I was seeing five kids at a time in my private studio, um, looking at this strategy um, for my you know my friend's studio who was seeing twelve kids at a time, and then our summer camp we were seeing twenty four kids at a time. So for me, the thinking of it's all about product, it's all about delivering the result. It was almost like mass production of really good musicians. So, um, and, and so all of this, this is the context, all of this thinking developed in the context of this has to work in a group lesson environment. Yeah. A one to yeah. 24 ratio. <laughs> um, uh, it was three to 24. So three, there were okay, two master it. teachers and there was an assistant. Um, it. yeah. Um, so can we go back? So that's the context. Now, can we go back to your question? Can you briefly remind me what the question was? Cause absolutely. So I love this. This that's great con uh, context. Um, it feels very similar, honestly, to like our group classes, which are in our case band classes. But yes, you've got six students in a room at a time, right? Um, the question was: so this group class, maybe they enroll at six-year-olds, and you're you're really wanting to see them through this journey. Maybe it's a three-year journey. Oh four-year journey, what does the year two or three or four yes. look like as some of them, you might bump into that comment, like this okay. is hard. So yeah, your original question was, well, Daniel, what about a year in when they start saying it's hard or two years in or three years? In? Okay. So here's the thing. And this is what blew my mind because I did not expect this to happen. I was trying to solve the problem of kids groaning when they turn the page. Oh, this feels so hard. Um, and it was starting almost 
at the very, very beginning. It was starting within a couple lessons of them getting started. And so naturally, because most teachers have mostly beginners, I was solving these problems primarily in the context of those first-year students, even first-month students. Meanwhile, I'm also trying to solve that problem with kids who've already been taking five years. Right. This is what I didn't expect to happen. And you have to take this on faith that I have no reason to lie, you know, because I mean, I don't have a studio anymore. I'm not trying to convince parents of this. But once I solved the problem at the foundational level with those kids in their first month and first year, I never heard it. I never got to a point where the kid was saying, oh, this is hard now. So I was asking myself, because the kids that when I started all this experimentation, it took a couple of years for kids to matriculate through and for me to really fully realize the, the significance of what I had done. I never, those kids that had been, who had started in a certain way, never were, never got as good as the kids that I started out that new way. So, okay. That's probably not so earth shattering. Hold on. Okay. It's probably not so earth shattering. Um, but what I began to realize was that, and in, educationally, I don't know if there's a theory behind this or if someone's done research on this or whatever. And, and so this could just be me trying to put a descriptor on something that I've observed, but it isn't actually what's going on. I don't know, but this is what I observed is almost that because the kids learn the first couple concepts in the book so poorly. And because you're having to take a couple lessons for them to kind of somewhat understand the concept that that now is like a weight on the child. So we taught them rhythm. We taught them the white key names. I'm talking for piano. Obviously you can translate this to guitar or, you know, drums or whatever, um, or violin. We, we teach them this, they kind of get it. They're struggling through their songs. And then they falteringly get them. So it took them two or three weeks to pass the white key songs, you know, around pages 20 to 30 of Faber, Primer. Then we push them into staff. They still haven't fully realized, apprehended, internalized the concepts in the first 37 pages of the book, but we're already pushing them on. And so it's almost as if the kid's understanding is three or six months behind, or maybe even a year behind where they're actually at in their material. Because we never gave them the foundational skill of of basic rhythm reading and sight reading and note reading skills. Basic sight reading skills, both note reading and rhythm reading. So if it just seems as if if I could get the kid to understand the physical part of the playing, not the intellectual, that they would be able to play really well. And so I would just turn the page and it they weren't held back because of, of the conceptual pace. I think what I'm trying to say here is that I didn't care about the kids conceptually understanding music. I wanted to know that their hand could do it. And by teaching to the physical skill-based aspect and not the conceptual aspect, that I think is what unlocked it for kids and made it feel easy to them. And again, I don't have any fancy theories or proofs. What I do know is that as I stopped focusing on teaching music, and focused more on <clears throat> equipping kids, especially kids in their first three to six months, with the skill of just being able to use their hand to do things on the piano, that I stopped hearing those complaints. They sight read faster, they learn their songs faster. And instead of going home with two or three songs per week and struggling with them for a couple of weeks, especially for kids in the primer book, the, the, most kids in my first lesson would learn like 20 pages and they could play those 20 pages perfectly when they came back the next week. Um, and and I, I even had kids, especially kids who were nine and older, they could get through the entire favorite primer book in four to six weeks. Whereas most people were saying, you know, as I pulled teachers, as I worked with them and, and kind of learned a lot about how education was going in other schools, six months, nine months, a year sometimes. And I remember when that was true for me. But as I stopped focusing on teaching the music and focusing on the physical aspects of playing, the skill, uh, the skill of actually using their hand to produce sound, that's, that's where things just change for them. And then because they had that skill, the concepts were almost second because they're still just using their hand. So that's why I never heard 
three years into it, oh, we're in 3B now. Now it suddenly got hard. It never was. It just, I, it stopped happening. And I go in this a lot more depth in, in other places. Um, and, and I'm trying to give the high level overview here, but I go in depth of this. I spend hours and hours and hours teaching teachers how to do this in the context of our lesson training. I don't know about you, but I didn't get an owner's manual when I started my music school. And I wasted a lot of time on trial and error and making things up as I went along. But you don't have to do that. Nate and I are building a library of resources and tools exclusively for fans of this podcast. Go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS and sign up to receive podcast updates, free resources, and even submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. That's growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMS. And we look forward to answering your questions. So we, this is, this is really, really great insight into the detail of what it feels felt like in your studio, right? First of all, the con the, the context of a group lesson versus a one-on-one -on -one, um, <clears throat> offers its own specific challenges. And then your approach. Um, and remember we were like, I want to remind our listeners, we were talking about outcome. You were talking about, relationships and product. And I, and I sort of, in my mind, always frame product as what am I, what's the outcome we're promising. And so when I hear you describe um, your journey around improving retention, it was around refining your outcome promised. And you just put it so perfectly. You were like, rather than coming home with two to three songs a week, your promise was that they would come home with five, six, seven songs a week. Um, and that yes. and you were also you put it right on the banner, probably, which is like your child will think piano is easy or something. Right? You probably had way better language than that. But anyway, and then the back the backup was that in in the lesson, that first lesson, the parent would see that actually be true because they yeah. would see yeah. how fast the child would get through the music. So it wasn't just a slogan. This is why it was ridiculous to me that once I became kind of a little more well known because of Grow Your Music Studio. I, I caught teachers copying my website. They were literally lifting words, yes. paragraphs, entire pages on my website, putting on theirs, thinking that was the magic, but it would never work for them like it worked for me. And, and I, um, because they, they couldn't actually back the promise up. They thought, oh, oh, the secret must be in what he's putting on his website. No, it's the product. It's the product, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but check it out, Daniel. This is the key, I think. And we talked okay. about this in the last episode. What I hear there is a very clear why for you. For you, this physical nature of playing the instrument was so, so important to you. And mm -hmm. I'm sure it still is to this day. Like that's probably, like I talk all the time with my students around the tactile nature of what it means to sit at the Steinway. Literally the intimacy of having your hand on the keys. I, one of my last great teachers, Sofia Rossoff, she used to have me come and just rest my hand on the keys. And then she'd say, now, Nathan, I want you to hug the instrument like it's your mother. And it was just like opened my whole idea up into the intimacy of how amazing it mm. felt to have my hand on the keys and to be creating something with it. Now, why I'm highlighting the why is because it's exactly what you're describing here. You know, your website only is as effective as you are as a studio owner, defining your why, and then, as you say, developing a program that can deliver on it. So at, at Brooklyn Music Factory, we always talk about the ear, the brain, the body. We have a radically different outcome that we promise. In fact, we oftentimes talk about, um, we talk about music fluency first. We say we're literally a fluency-first approach. So here's, here's a radical concept for our listeners. How can both Daniel's studio and the Brooklyn Music Factory both have such high retention when they have such radically different approaches and promises to the outcome? It's because the clarity was there, right? Daniel, you had such clarity on your why, and you had very much, you had a lot of clarity on your own personal obsession, mm -hmm. right? At Brooklyn Music Factory, to me, songwriting was huge. I wanted to develop improvisers. I want to develop songwriters. And so, therefore, a fluency-first approach that is hammering ear training and music theory is essential. You cannot become an improviser or a composer 
unless you are taking, unless you're doubling down on concepts, right? Um, In fact, the instrument is of less import. That's a radical concept. Parents are like, we literally have people ask, parents ask all the time, when will my child learn how to sight read? And the first thing we show them is a lead sheet. And they're like, what is that? And they're like, actually, that's the language. This is a lead sheet from a recording session that my brother just did in Nashville. You know, they're Mm -hmm. like, what? Like, because that's the songwriter's environment, you know? So um, I think that that is brilliant what you just shared there, because you're talking about um, like you just sort of reframe foundation, I think, for our listeners in a way that hopefully really helps. I have a follow-up question for you, though, Daniel. I want to see how you answer this. Mm -hmm. Let's say our listeners were like, holy buckets. My website promises something that I can't deliver on. I actually don't have teachers that have a lesson plan that's even remotely as clear as Daniel's was, et cetera. And they're just feeling like, wait, how am I supposed to expect high retention if I feel like I'm still just trying to define my why and a method that can support it. Is there like a, dude, is there like a first step that a listener can even take to get to the point of obsession? Like you had a couple of years into your journey where you were like, I'm totally obsessed now with this one question or comment rather that my students always make. What's, what's like a good, like what's a seven day action that our listeners can take on this? Ooh, boy. You dig? What do we got? Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I think I might have to talk my way through to get there. Are you okay with that? I'm, I'm totally, I love it. Because I think, I think there is something, but I kind of bristle at the form of the question, to be honest. Mm. Because it goes back to the tactical approach, which I think doesn't work. Develop- if it's an action. However, if I hear your question say, what can they do in the next seven days to, to start going down this road? I actually do have an answer for that. That's what I want to know. Developing okay. a foundation that can, is a sustainable yes. improve retention over the years ahead. And I think it's this, that all the tactical questions you have about retention all of the um, insecurities you have around in, uh, retention or the frustrations, how, however you'd label it. Uh, I, I, I want to be generous because I realize people have different relationships to this question um, personally. Um, is I think you have to sit with those and st- uh, um, you have to sit with those questions and you have to reject the short-term fixes and start thinking longer term. I think that's the only way out of most of the problems in our business. And it goes back to something I've said over and over and over again in these first 20 something episodes is that um, when you boil self-help down, it's long-term over short-term. And for me, I sat in the tension of the question of, why, why do kids quit? Because it's hard. I sat in the tension of that for years. I bled over that for years. Um, and I, I didn't hop from question to question. I didn't hop from theory to theory. I just stuck with the theory. Um, and it started with me and this is where it gets foggy. You know, the, 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 the fog of time, you tend to simplify things. Mm, down right, to right. the bullet point. <laughs> but I, but so what's the seven day action? It's even to figure out what the most important question to ask is. I think that's it. I think you sit down for an hour and you type into Evernote or into a Word doc or Google doc or write in your journal longhand or onto a legal pad, whatever your method of thinking, you know, written out is. You start writing, you start writing it down. Um, and, and there will be value in just doing that. I think there's value in bringing the deepest frustrations you have about school ownership to a coach. They really help you unpack things. I, people, 
I constantly hear when I work one-on-one with someone after a couple months, I just didn't realize I was going to get this out of this. I thought I was coming for this. Here's what I got that was way more meaningful. I hear this all the time. I wish I could bottle that up and help people understand just how much um, sitting in that pain is can be helpful, but sitting in that pain with someone who's trained to help you through it, that can be revolutionary and life-changing. And it was for me. So the action I think is just to begin, you know, to write these things out, to ruminate on them, to sit with them um, and, and stop attempting, you know, to make, stop believing the lie that there's going to be a short-term fix for this, which is not a popular opinion to have, but it is what it is. Can I make one suggestion based on your story too? Sure. I love that, which is listen to your students this week. Oh my goodness. Listen yeah. Anytime that they offer resistance, listen, watch their body language. Listen to when they slouch. I mean, observe when they slouch. You took the simple tactical move of asking, why do you say that? Like you literally paused in your lesson plan and asked a question of your student that had nothing to do with sight reading. Mm-hmm. You're just like, why are you saying that's hard? Why are you sighing? You know, and, 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 and I think that that is an amazing move too that will go back to your suggestion, which is just compile a list of questions and comments that your students are making. <sighs> Yes. And be more curious than certain. Yes. We, we, we live in a society, most of us live in a society where there is a low tolerance for pain. And there, um, Jacques Ellul has, uh, he wrote a book uh, where uh, um, he talked about how as in, in modern life, we assume there's a solution to everything and that it is imminent. That if I just had the right information or just had the right data, that I could have solved this problem. What that turns us into is data junkies where we're out there looking for the correct thing. If I just find it, if I just get the right information and implement that, then we're cool. You you have to be curious and, and commit to the long path. And I think this could be a good place where I kind of go from telling the longer story and maybe kind of um, summarize in a way that I kind of summarized what you said in the, in, in um, at the end of our last episode, I kind of said, I had like six points, like Nate, this is what I felt. I heard you say, I think I want to do a little mini summary here because we really did get into the weeds on the product part, Mm. but to get back to it, the one, two punches, um, uh, the uh, people don't quit a great product. And then it's about the relationship of communicating it, how good it is to the people around you, whether they're your client or not. Um, So maybe the way I summarize the product portion, at least for my own personal journey, and then I think people can kind of make, uh, can can transfer the principles there to their own journey Mm -hmm. and even perhaps find what they're already brilliant at and start thinking about it in a different way, start thinking about communicating in a different way is really this. I started with this question of why do kids quit because it's hard. And so the obsession for me became not how do I trick people into staying here longer, but how do I make it so they want to stay here longer? It's push versus pull. And so as I focused on the product portion of it, the retention aspect of it naturally took care of itself. Also, if there was a secret to of the success, looking in hindsight, there was a burst of energy at the beginning for the child. When we did the Piano Express summer camp, we would get through the kids through the equivalent of Faber One in one week. There was this rocket blast of energy. And so kids naturally went into the year-round program that my, my um, because this was done in, in Northern Virginia. Um, my friend, who I was running the marketing for the school and for the, uh, and for the summer camp, the marketing year-round, all, it kind of didn't matter because we had this summer camp that we heavily promoted. We get a crop of 100, 150, 200 kids into that, all brand new. And then a huge majority of them would go into the after school program year round and they would stay forever. And, and I really do trace it back to 
the initial impression they had of music is that it was fun. It was exciting. Most of those kids learned nearly 100 songs in their first week of music. 100 songs. The parents were impressed. The kids were on fire. They were super energized. And then they went into the, they went into the, the weekly rhythm, which feels different than kind of the boot camp feel. But there was such an, um, an after effect of that that would last for so long. And then because they'd been immersed in the language of music so much in that first week, there was some natural benefits of that that, I, that were conferred upon them that you couldn't get if you were just trying to recreate that feel on a week-by-week setting. Okay, that's the next thing. And then the other question that I really would challenge to people is, look, you may not, you may not be obsessed with that question like I am. There might be something different for you or for your school. But I think we all have to contend with the question you should maybe ask yourself over the next seven days. How do we overcome the burden of ownership? Mm. Ownership being, how do we overcome the burden of owning these lessons, paying for these lessons month after month? For me, the answer to that was make it feel easy. Make it so it's a casual thing. Make it so the kid turns the page and it's no big thing. Make it so that they're in a group lesson. They stay there for an hour or longer. There's schools I know that have taken my model and, and gone even longer. There's a school in Israel I know that has massive enrollment, and they have their kids stay from right after school till eight or nine at night. And the kid, it's an it's a half day experience every single week. And not all, I mean, not all of it is even music-based. There's a homework room. So the kids can have some downtime from music and they go do their homework. They have a movie room in their school where the kids will watch a movie on that night. This is how you overcome the burden of ownership. And for me, it was, I didn't do a lot of fancy stuff. It was literally just come in. The kids learn all their songs with me, really. First year, no one learned music at home. They practice it at home but they, they would leave the lesson with the song already learned. That was another promise I made. That's how I overcame that burden because when they would go home, I could even tell the parents, you know what? If they don't even practice at home this week, it won't even matter because they already left. They're just doing it for fun at home, basically. I don't need them to do all that much at home. Parents love that. It took this huge burden off of them of being the bad guy and seeing their kid in there every day. And you know what? The parents who were type A who were going to do it anyway, they did it. But it let the type B parents, which is the vast majority of parents in your studio, off the hook because they, they would start showing these insecurities after a couple of months and they'd say, oh, they're not practicing a lot. I, I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. They're going to get through three books this year, whether they practice at home or not. I promise you that. Mm. And honestly, most of the students in my school did that. Um, so um, the other thing is, and you've mentioned a few times, you took you took my own talking point away from me because oh. you know me so well at this point. No, no, it's fine, Nate. Is just the, the questions, the customer data. If I got into anything tactical, when when people would leave the school, I would ask them, why did you leave? Most people don't have this system deployed, even big schools. Oh, I, I need to do that. I feel so guilty. I should have been doing this for years. Just do it. I would get the customer data and I wouldn't use that to kind of like figure out how to trick them into staying. I would just use it to learn how parents were naturally talking themselves out of the lessons. And I would just adjust my language and I would play, I'd be four chess moves ahead of them. Oh, parents who quit at about the one year mark tended to say this. And about six to nine months into the lessons, I would start saying a certain thing. So that if there was any possible reason why parents would talk themselves out of lessons because of their own misperceptions of how their child was doing, I could just talk them out of it. So a lot of times the parents would just say these things and it would all be fantasy on their part anyway. Like they, they weren't even included into the reality of what was going on with the child or how it was going in the school. And so I just figured out how to kind of take the burden off of parents of like their expectations on themselves or their expectations on their child. And I just kept working happily in my little music lab, just getting the results of the kids, irrespective of what was going on in the parents' head that was disconnected from reality. So that's kind of those four things. Um, the question, uh, the burst of energy at the beginning, which I think was a huge part, yeah. um, the burden of ownership and overcoming that. And then just kind of that little tactical thing of really taking a customer feedback seriously, both as they were leaving the school and then even across the journey. I have years and years of data from the same parent where every fall when they would re-enroll, I would ask questions and they couldn't re-enroll unless they asked them. It was all in the same form. And I, I just got hundreds and hundreds of data points every single fall 
and, and would just use that to adjust how I was thinking, adjust how I was marketing, adjust how I was communicating internally so that I could, again, just like with the kids, so I could script everything out and not leave anything up to chance. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.